welcome to the High Vibe and Healthy podcast. My name is Fran Dargaville and I'm a functional nutritionist with a passion for gut health and real food. I'm here to share my take on nutrition and health, answer your questions and chat with leading health and wellness experts and all-round inspiring humans. Enjoy this week's episode and submit your questions at frandargaville.com or via my Instagram, frandargaville. This podcast is brought to you by my new program, High Vibe and Gut Healthy. If you're ready to get to the root cause of frustrating gut issues, this program is for you. I have a range of options from an affordable self-study course to a VIP program with a high level of personalized support. Head to frandargaville.com forward slash high vibe to learn more and use the code podcast at checkout to get $50 off any of the program options. Let's get into the episode. Hey there, friend. I hope you're doing really well. Today, we're chatting all about the thyroid, and I have an awesome guest for you, thyroid expert Michael Rutherford. Michael is an incredibly knowledgeable practitioner, and he's actually a mentor of mine in the functional nutrition space. This is a really important conversation because there are a lot of people out there struggling with the effects of poor thyroid function. Some of the common signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism or low thyroid function include fatigue, constipation, weight gain, and thinning hair and eyebrows. And with the thyroid in particular, there are huge challenges when it comes to getting help from your doctor. Conventional medicine, unfortunately, only looks at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to thyroid testing. In this episode, we cover what the thyroid is and why it's important, the main signs and symptoms of thyroid dysfunction, lab testing for the thyroid and the tests that you actually want to make sure that you're getting run to check in with your thyroid function, the key factors at the root cause of thyroid dysfunction, and how to support the thyroid naturally. So let's get into it. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So let's dive straight into chatting all about the thyroid. So what is the thyroid and why should we care? Yeah. So the thyroid, it's a little tiny gland. It lives in your neck. In fact, when you have issues that can be going on with it, such as a a goiter, which is basically just an enlarged nodule part of it, you can sometimes even feel the lump in your throat. Basically, it's a little butterfly shape that sits right back here in your throat. And what it really does is it's essentially running your entire metabolism. It's really the regulator of your metabolic rate. Now, a lot of us think of our metabolic rate as just, oh, how I burn energy and how I burn fat it really controls a lot more than that. It regulates your temperature. So it's basically like the thermostat in your body. It has a major influence over your digestion because your metabolic rate is, has a high impact there. What's happening at the cell level, your energy creation, and even your heart. Uh, so when we have issues with our thyroid, we can have a myriad of different symptoms in all of those different areas. We've seen even low grades of hypothyroidism, so lower thyroid function, increasing rates of cardiovascular disease and its effect on heart health. We can see digestive issues, nutrient problems, all sorts of things just from this little, it's a little tiny gland, but man, is it important. Yeah. Okay. That's really, really helpful. So what are some of the main signs and symptoms that thyroid dysfunction is at play? And I know you mentioned there is, you know, low thyroid function, overactive thyroid, these different things. So obviously there's going to be 
different symptoms associated with that. But what does that look like typically? Yeah, and you know, I'll, I'll say a lot of people will often, we almost, and I do this too, we just say thyroid problems. And 90% of the time, people are referring to hypothyroid, so a lower thyroid function. It is far more common. But yeah, there's definitely hyperthyroid function. Um, and some of those symptoms might be the inverse of hypothyroid. So we'll start with the hypothyroid symptoms because these are obviously the most common, what a lot of people are dealing with um, at a much higher rate. So things like fatigue, again, we're looking at energy, metabolism. So fatigue, increased sensitivity to cold. So if you get cold really easy, that's often um, related to hypothyroidism because again, you can't, it regulates your body's temperature, your thermostat. And so it, it doesn't adjust well to that cold constipation is a big one, dry skin, weight gain, puffy in the face, just general weakness, elevated blood cholesterol. We actually use thyroid hormones in the liver to clear out cholesterol in the blood. And so sometimes high cholesterol can be a sign of hypothyroidism and vice versa. Hyperthyroidism can actually cause low cholesterol because we're clearing too much of that. Thinning of the hair, slower heart rate, depression. Those are some really big ones. And then again, we also talked about that enlarged gorder in the throat. Those can also be symptoms as well. Yeah. And then did that cover overactive thyroid as well? Yeah. So a hyperthyroid, again, some of the things it can be often, we'll see some of those opposites. So unintentional weight loss. So just losing weight kind of out of nowhere, you didn't change anything. You started losing your weight. That can be a big thing. Cause again, we're actually increasing our metabolism and burning through that rapid heartbeat specifically when it starts getting to a point of like tachycardia, meaning like over a hundred beats a minute, just rest, just at rest. Like you're just resting in your heart, just like beating out of your chest. It's just like, that can sometimes be even irregular heartbeats. Um, so sometimes it's just speeding up an increased appetite along with that ramped up metabolism. And then like nervousness, anxiety, and irritability. Those are going to be other big ones as well. Um, and then again, also super low cholesterol. So if your cholesterol, especially as an adult, is in like the low hundreds for total cholesterol or um, in international units, I'm trying to think of what that would be. That's in US units. I don't remember the uh, what that would be. <laughs> in, uh, we can work that out and put units, that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but a typically low, if you're at the really, if you're really quite low, you know, especially if it's, you've seen a major drop, that can again sometimes be a result of that, and sometimes even even loose stools again compared with that. Just like constipation can come from slow function, you can actually have loose stools from hyperthyroid. Yeah. Okay. That's really, really interesting. So what are some of the main factors that are actually at the root cause of thyroid dysfunction? Oh man, that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of those like huge spider webs of things that can be going on. And that's really the biggest thing. And I think that's missed so much, whether you're seeing a holistic practitioner or allopathic kind of normal doctor is that so often we, we're not really looking at why the thyroid isn't working properly. So often we're just different approaches to, to the thyroid hormone we're giving or the medication we're giving. But some major things, nutrient deficiencies for sure. There's so many nutrients involved in the entire process of the thyroid from the making of the thyroid hormones itself all the way down to the cell's ability to use the hormones. So there's a whole process along that. And then even converting those hormones, there's tons of nutrients involved in there. So that can highly have a huge impact on different heavy metals, especially mercury. There's really interesting studies looking at those who work in the dental field. So anywhere from hygienists 
to dental assistants and even dentists, um, and higher rates specifically of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease causing hypothyroidism, and their mercury exposure because as dentists, they're often mercury fillings and they have a higher uh, exposure to mercury than the general population. And they have higher rates of Hashimoto's in that industry compared to the general population. And seeing those often with that mercury toxicity, that can be a really big one. Fluoride is another one. Um, these begin to disrupt the body's ability to use iodine and displacing iodine. So those can definitely cause issues. Any sort of infections or environmental toxins like molds and pesticides and plastic all of these can begin to disrupt sometimes the thyroid function itself, but sometimes also the cellular level. So there's, we, you know, we can get into this later. We actually kind of have two different classes of hypothyroid. We have glandular hypothyroidism and then we have cellular hypothyroidism. These are two things that don't get talked about enough, even in kind of the alternative functional space and how different those are in the approaches that are different. Other hormones, can definitely play an impact here. Estrogen being a big one. This can disrupt the binding proteins for those hormones. Thyroid hormones are actually fat soluble. And so they don't move around in the, in the blood all that freely because our blood is water-based and water and fat don't mix. We need to bind them to proteins to move them throughout the body. And so only very little is actually free and it's basically becoming free and unbound at the cell level and going into the cell. So we have very small amounts of our total hormone that's actually free. And if we have two, if we have disruption from other hormones, especially estrogen, whether it's synthetic or natural, if we have too much of it, that can disrupt those binding proteins. And we can have, we can have enough total thyroid hormone, but not enough free and available for ourselves to use because there's too much binding protein. So hormonal birth control is going to be a really big one whether that is, you know, especially the pill, that's going to be a really big cause or any sort of exogenous estrogen that you're taking pills or creams, or even just something like PCOS or excess androgens or excess estrogens in both of those situations can cause disruption in the thyroid function. There's lots of studies looking at women with PCOS have higher rates of hypothyroidism compared to the general population. It might be a chicken or an egg situation, Sometimes those, you know, there can be a lot of things in common there, but also just the disruption in the sex hormones can, can disrupt the thyroid function. Yeah, absolutely. And how about low carb and low calorie diets in women? Do you see that having an impact on thyroid function as well? Oh, I love, so, well, we're, these are two, we're going to have to address these as two separate things. <laughs> low carb when done properly doesn't seem to disrupt thyroid function. Long-term, there's about four studies that I've ever seen that actually look at low-carb or ketogenic diets and thyroid function. And none of them are longer than four weeks, which is a major problem when looking at low-carb because we know there's a transition period that will disrupt different things. We know that, you know, we call it keto flu. There's a change in energy levels and fatigue. And some of that is change to thyroid function. We also know that that doesn't last very long, but that usually only lasts the first couple of weeks if it happens and there are things we can do to avoid it, and then it gets better. But if you want to make a low carb or ketogenic diet look bad, the best way to do it is to study it for a short period of time because we know there's that transition period. I have personally worked with probably a hundred women who had low thyroid function and we utilized a ketogenic or low carb diet. I didn't do it specifically because I think that low carb or keto was great for thyroid. It's that they had other issues as well 
maybe it was obesity, it was type two diabetes, it was metabolic syndrome. And we needed to address that because that's one going to be causing some of the thyroid issues and disrupting that. And they kind of go back and forth that hypothyroidism can also lead to metabolic issues, but that we were using that in tandem. And when done properly, doesn't seem to actually have a problem. There's not really any physiological processes that happen in a low carb ketogenic state that would disrupt thyroid function. What does happen is that when women go on low carbon ketogenic diets is they do what you mentioned earlier, which is low calorie and or low protein. Those two things will disrupt thyroid function primarily through disrupting the pituitary. So the pituitary is a little tiny piece of your brain that is essentially the control tower over your endocrine system. So over your, all of your hormones, that's your sex hormones, your thyroid hormones, adrenals. We have these, what are called the HPA, HPT, HPG access. That's hypothalamus pituitary, neither adrenal gonads or thyroid, A, G, and T. And so when the pituitary doesn't get, when the body doesn't get enough calories and or protein, we can have hypofunction of that pituitary. It starts slowing down basically like, oh, we're starving. We're not in a good state. We want to lower everything. If we don't have a lot coming in, the pituitary is going to tell the thyroid to slow down because it's burning through everything it has. And so it wants to reserve that low calories and low protein are very, very common for doing that. And because a ketogenic diet can be incredibly satiating, it's very common to undereat protein and calories. But especially for women who are already more likely than men to undereat protein and calories as a whole, especially if they're trying to diet. Most women who are on a ketogenic diet are trying to lose weight and diet. And so they're on top of that, it, on top of already this mindset of I need to eat less, is they have a diet that can be very satiated. And so we have to find ways around that. And it might be that maybe that diet won't work for them because in this time, they just can't get past that satiating barrier. And so they're just, and they just can't eat enough. A lot of times I found that working through digestion and getting that process working allows the appetite to work better and that we can do both low carb and have thyroid issues and be just fine. Yeah, absolutely. And as we know, with ketogenic and low carb diets, there is a huge range of ways that people can do that. And in the space that we're in, the ketogenic or low carb diet usually looks like quality proteins, healthy fats, and non-starchy veggies as the source of carbohydrates, whether, you know, whereas there's a whole spectrum of things outside of that junk food style keto, which is really just looking at the macronutrients only and fitting whatever you can into those macronutrients, which could be absolute garbage and not providing any fuel for the body whatsoever. Yeah. Telling me that you eat a ketogenic diet tells me nothing because you can eat a horrifically unhealthy ketogenic diet. I mean, you can eat traditional mayonnaise and just the junkiest hot dogs and it's ketogenic. You can live off McDonald's and be ketogenic. Like not, it, it has nothing to do with quality or specific ingredients. So some people are like, oh, well, so soybean oil isn't on a ketogenic diet. Yes, it is. All that keto means is restricting your carbohydrates to a point of not of, you know, allowing your body to get into a state of ketosis. In fact, it has nothing to do with eating in a sense, because the quickest way to ketosis is to not eat is to fast. That's the quickest way there. 
And so, you know, we have to understand that. It, and then understand that it's not about fat. Like people are like, oh, well, you need fat for a ketogenic diet. No, you don't. Because again, the quickest way there is to not eat at all, is to eat no fat, no carbs, no protein. That's the quickest way there. When I am using a ketogenic diet in my practice, what I focus on is protein, fiber, so like not, and specifically from non-starchy vegetables, nuts and seeds, berries, and then fats. Yes, we need the fats and they're great, but they shouldn't be this massive, like just pile it on everything, right? Just like, oh, just slab, you know, a half a brick of butter on there and just drizzle, you know, cover everything in oil. It's like, use it as necessary, but really fill your plate with good quality protein and non-starchy vegetables. And then use that as you need, and you're going to get far better results. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So let's chat about lab testing for the thyroid now, because I know this is just a huge area where a lot of people get caught out because often people will just go to their doctor and the only test that is ever run is TSH. And I know here in Australia in particular, even if the doctor requests a full thyroid panel, if TSH is normal, they do not do any of the other tests at all. All that comes back is TSH which is a huge problem. So even if the doctor is trying to do the right thing and, you know, investigate further beyond TSH, that's all they're getting if TSH is in range. So Michael, could you tell us what the problem with this is and what we really need to be considering when it comes to lab markers for thyroid health? I'm trying to wrap my head around. (laughs) So the lab will actually just not, they'll run the TSH first. And if it's normal, they won't even run the rest, even if the doctor requests it. Yep. That is, that is correct. We do have private labs, but if you order through the, you know, the main labs that that doctors use here in Australia, that's what happens. That's incredibly frustrating. Wow. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Talk about a lack of medical freedom. Oof. That is really, that would be incredibly frustrating as a doctor, like trying to do the right thing and just getting stonewalled like that. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of issues there. One, I mean, there's two pieces here. One, the lab, the the range the labs are using are completely inaccurate. And again, I don't know exactly what you guys are using here, but I can use the US for an example, is that our range for TSH is I think it's like 0.45 to like 4.5, give or take roughly. Each lab is a little bit different. That's the other problem. There is no like consensus across every lab is they're allowed to make their own ranges and decide what that is. And so sometimes they'll be a little bit different. Some of them are all the way up to five. Yet back in in the mid 2000s, like 2006 and 2007, we're talking almost 15 years ago, or at least, you know, about 15 years ago. This is a long time two different major endocrinology uh, associations here in the U.S. came out and said the upper limit of TSH should be lowered to three, not five or or 4.5, but three, because what we call subclinical hypothyroid, which is essentially those who have a TSH between three and 4.5. So between that range that they're now saying should be the upper limit and the current one, is that even in there has an increased risk for things like cardiovascular disease and all sorts of other problems. They can have all the symptoms of hypothyroidism, even though they're quote unquote normal TSH. And again, their hormones will often be subclinically low. So they're not all the way down outside the lab range, but they're on, they're in the lower quartile of that. 
which is outside of what we would consider the optimal range. I think the lab range, for example, of T3 is like 2.2 and the optimal range is like above three. That's a big difference. It's like a 30% difference. I mean, that's a big chunk of what we see. And I see a lot of clients who are like 2.5, 2.6 and their doctor's like, oh, everything is fine. And they feel like crap. Here in the, in the US, you know, we'll often get TSH and if you're lucky, you get T4. Now, part of the problem is you might only get total T4 and not the free T4. The free hormone is what really matters because that's what your body can use. As we talked about earlier, things like estrogen can disrupt the amount of free hormone available. And so your total levels could be completely fine and yet your free bioavailable levels are not. And that makes a big difference. So we could run the, the TSH and you know, total levels and be like, oh yeah, everything's fine. And lo and behold, there's issues with your free hormones. The TSH is just, there's a whole host of problems. We talked about the pituitary having problems and being hypopituitary from low calorie, high stress, low protein. Those are big things. And you know, we talk about, well, there's a reason why women suffer with thyroid problems eight times more than men, while low calorie, low protein, high stress. I mean, that, that probably describes 80% of women on the, in industrialized countries living in those situations. And what that does is that inhibits the pituitary function. The pituitary is what sends that TSH. So that TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, comes from the pituitary. And that, what that does is that's the signal going to the thyroid telling it how much to produce. I'll often explain this through the analogy of like being in, in a workplace. The pituitary is operating like the manager. This is the person in charge, this is the boss. The TSH is like the memo that they're sending. These are the report, the daily reports that they're sending out. We need this much work. And then the thyroid is the employee. And the thyroid hormone would be whatever that employee is trying to build. Let's say we're trying to build cars. And so we don't have a lot of cars. And so we need more. There's a high demand for cars and we don't have very many. So the boss is going to send lots of, uh, you know, a big memo saying we need lots of cars. And so the employee does his job and creates lots of cars. Now we could have a problem where we may not have a lot of cars, but we also don't have a lot of parts to build the cars. Those would be the nutrients. And so the memos could be coming and it may not happen. So we have, we have dysfunction at the thyroid because even though the memos are coming, the thyroid's not doing its job because it doesn't have the parts to build a car. Now, what if you just had a crappy manager? Maybe it's a family-owned business and their son just got out of college and the dad's trying to do right by his son and gives him this job as a manager and, this, and, the, and he has no idea what he's doing. And so he's not sending enough memos. It's really not the employee's fault. They're only going to produce the work that they're told. And so if they're not receiving the memo to say, hey, we need to produce a lot of work, they're not going to. That's really not a problem of the thyroid. The thyroid gland is actually responding appropriately. The TSH is the problem from the pituitary. And what can happen is the lab range for TSH is only set up to establish hyperthyroidism. So really low TSH signifies a hyperthyroid function. Because if there's lots of hormone, because it's hyper, so it's producing lots of hormone, we're going to have very little TSH. Because again, that's the signal to produce work. So the TSH and thyroid hormones that essentially move in opposite directions. The more hormone, the less TSH. The less hormone, the more TSH. So you're going to work on like a seesaw. Now, what happens if we have low of both? That's a big problem because they should move opposite. And yet this is where a lot of women especially are sitting. They're sitting in these subclinical low levels of hormones. So they're just they're at the very bottom of the lab range. 
but still within lab range, but sitting at that bottom. And their TSH is low and or normal. Now, again, it's still within the lab range. You're really never going to see that TSH fall outside lab range from hypopituitary. And that's a big problem because they never get looked at. They're like, oh, yep, it's fine. So we can just put this into to US units because I can't remember the, the international. But the range for T4 is 1 to like 1.5. For T3, it's like 3 to 4.5. Now, if my thyroid hormones are at one in three, so at the very bottom range of optimal, I wouldn't expect my TSH to also be at the very bottom range of optimal, which is about 1.5 to, to three. I would expect it to be toward the higher end, but let's say our TSH is like 1.5 and our hormones are all low. To me, that's abnormal because they should be moving opposite directions. And this is what I teach You know, I actually teach blood chemistry. And one of the big things I talk about is abnormal normal values. Meaning even though it's a normal value, it's still abnormal. It shouldn't be. Physiologically, the way the rest of your body and your markers are looking, your symptoms and everything is looking, that, that value should not be normal. It should be higher. It might be high normal, but still you know, but elevated or even slightly high. So there's a lot of issues that can happen. Now, what should we run when looking at the thyroid? This is a big discussion. Allopathic medicine says TSH and T4, right? Or apparently just TSH as long, and then maybe everything else. But we could argue, you know, we can make the argument that, that allopathic medicine, Western medicine says that it should be TSH and T4. There's an argument that makes sense for that. If we're only trying to establish the function of the thyroid gland itself, that's all you need. You only need the TSH and T4 to establish the function of the thyroid gland. I know there's T3 and there's reverse T3 and there's hormone, there's antibodies and all sorts of other things we can look at. But to understand how the thyroid gland is functioning, you need TSH and T4. Because out of what the thyroid produces, about 85% of that is T4. It only produces a small minute amount of the T3. It only produces about 15% of our total body's T3 comes from the thyroid gland. Most of that is made outside of the thyroid, not by the thyroid gland itself. So T3 is only, when we have issues with T3, it's not really a thyroid issue unless it's because there's not enough T4. But if we have adequate T4, the thyroid gland is doing its job. It's producing enough T4. So really you could even argue that T4 is all you need to establish thyroid gland function. This TSH is primarily measuring pituitary function. Is that working properly? But those two in tandem give us a really good idea. Now, what should we look at? Earlier, I mentioned glandular hypothyroidism for cellular hypothyroidism. This is why labs are important. Specific thyroid markers, TSH, T4, T3, that can include both the total and free amounts, something called reverse T3, which is basically how our body deactivates thyroid hormone is what that's used for essentially is to deactivate thyroid hormone. And then we have TPO antibodies, thyroid peroxidase antibodies, and thyroglobulin antibodies or TG antibodies. So these are the primary markers we're looking at for the thyroid. These are specific thyroid markers. The antibodies are used to establish autoimmune disease. Now, these markers in tandem, a lot of people in functional medicine and holistic and some integrative naturopathic will tell you that's a complete thyroid panel. I disagree. That only establishes the thyroid pattern. So that's going to let you know there's various different patterns of dysfunction. Uh, you know, we could have nutrient deficiency, we could have pituitary, you know, hypopituitary causing thyroid issues, we could have 
Hashimoto's, so autoimmune causing thyroid issues. We could have glandular hypothyroidism, we could have cellular hypothyroidism. Those thyroid markers help us establish the pattern, but we can't understand why with those markers. Each pattern can have multiple causes. And so we actually have a full thyroid panel. That includes all of those markers, so the total and free hormones, the reverse T3, the TSH, the TPO and TG antibodies. Then I'm also going to include the CBC with differential. That's the complete blood count. So that's looking at your white blood cells and the different types of them. That's going to look at your red blood cells and anemia markers like hemoglobin, uh, hematocrits, your MCV, MCH, MCHC. So these are all markers used for anemia and then your, your immune system for the white blood cells. Your comprehensive metabolic panel, what's referred to as the CMP14 here in the United States. I think down there, you guys have to order it individually as like your liver panel, your kidney panel, your electrolytes, uh, your fasting glucose. So it's going to have those kind of markers on it. I also run the ferritin, which is the storage protein for iron as well as the iron, the actual serum iron, the iron saturation. So how saturated are our binding proteins of iron? The TIBC, which is considered the total iron binding capacity. How many binding proteins for iron are in the blood? You could also use transferrin. I know some places don't have TIBC. I can't remember if Australia does or not, if you only have transferrin. Transferrin makes up about 80 to 85% of the TIBC. So we can basically use those interchangeably. A marker called GGT, which is gamma glutamyl transferase. It's another liver enzyme. It should be on the liver panel with all the other enzymes, but it's not. Sadly, really great marker. The hemoglobin A1C, so looking at your blood sugar. We have homocysteine, which is a marker of methylation, um, as well as like B9 and B12 status. Your fasting insulin, again, looking at blood sugar regulation. LDH, which is another enzyme that should be on the, that metabolic panel, but isn't phosphorus, which is a mineral, the um, sed rate, which is a, an inflammatory marker. And then I will also run oftentimes the Epstein-Barr virus antibodies. These Epstein-Barr virus, is, and specifically two that are, that are known for active viral activity. So we can, 95% of adults have EBV antibodies in them, Epstein-Barr virus. This is what causes mono. Just about every single person gets exposed to it during their childhood whether they actually got full-blown mono or not, but they'll get exposed to it and have antibodies. There's like five different EBV antibodies and three of them, two or three of them will stay elevated. They get elevated when you get the infection and then they stay that way and they don't come back down. Sadly, seen some holistic practitioners who will run those antibodies to sell their EBV protocol. They have some expensive EBV protocol and they will tell you that EBV is the cause of all your problems and you just need to spend a couple grand on their detox protocol and get it under control. And it's great because it's basically going to come up positive in every single person you test. It's a 99 to 95%. It's a, I mean, from a business model, it's fantastic. <laughs> from a morality standpoint, it's terrible because it's not always active. So I only run the active antibodies because it's basically pointless to run the other ones because I already know they're gonna come back positive. That's a waste of time. I wanna know, is it currently active and causing symptoms and problems? Cause EBV is largely linked as a cause of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, especially in those clients. But if I'm suspecting thyroid issues, I will run those active antibodies because it will cause a lot of things like chronic fatigue syndrome type symptoms that are often interlinked with thyroid issues. And so is that behind it? That to me is a complete thyroid panel because that is going, all of those together are going to give me 
the pattern. So where is the dysfunction in the thyroid or the thyroid system? And then why is it happening? And that's the more important piece. Unless as a practitioner who doesn't use hormones, I don't prescribe medication. So I'm not giving hormones. I'm less concerned about the thyroid markers themselves than I am the root issues because I'm going to address these root core issues over here that I found in these other markers. And that's how I fix the thyroid function. Those are really more of a, a metric for me to see how much progress we made in that. Whereas what you see in allopathic medicine, they're just using the TSH and T4 because that's all they need to diagnose. And that's all they need to prescribe medication is it's all based on keeping those within optimal ranges, regardless of what the other hormones look like. Now in a lot of functional medicine or integrative or holistic or naturopathic is they'll run the T3 and the reverse T3 and they might run the antibodies. And their difference is that instead of giving just T4 levothyroxine, they're going to give um, a desiccated thyroid. That's a combination of T4 and T3, or they might give pharmacy compounded T4 and T3, or they might just give T3. And that's basically the only difference is that they're just like, oh, well, you have low T3, so we'll give you low T3. But why do we have low T3? Because if the reverse T3 is high and the, and the T3 is low, giving them T3 is not going to help in the long term. Because their body, what we said about the reverse T3 is it's, it's how the body deactivates thyroid hormone. So we have to move it down different pathways. And we do that by taking that T4 and instead of creating T3 out of it, we at the cellular level, turn it into reverse T3, which now does nothing, which is another misconception in alternative medicine is that T3 and reverse T3 fight for the receptors. And so too much reverse T3 beats the free T3 to the receptor, which isn't true because the receptor is in the nucleus where the reverse T3 can't even get into. So it can't even get to the area and it can't get into the room that the receptor is in to even activate it. So it just doesn't, it's deactivated T4. And you'll see this in people who are over-prescribed T4 medication, their, T, their reverse T3 is through the roof. because their body's like, we just don't need all this. And so we have to start digging through all of that. Mm, that's that's a really helpful distinction as someone who I had my own health challenges as many of us have had in this world and before I got into any of this it must have been at least 10 years ago I was seeing a functional medicine doctor at the time and had this exact experience with having low T3 I was put on T3 also low DHEA was put on DHEA and those things to me made zero difference because it wasn't actually addressing the root cause. So we can look at that and see this is a more holistic approach because they're looking beyond TSH, but then again, they're not actually addressing the root cause of why that dysfunction is present in the first place. Yeah. And the, one of the reasons why T3 therapy doesn't work long-term is if there's something stressing the body and that's why. So what happens is our thyroid gland produces the T4 and that goes out into our body. It goes to the liver, especially in the liver and intestines. Those are the liver and intestines are big converters of T4 to T3, but so are all the individual cells that need it. They contain these different, what are called deodinase enzymes. And these are the enzymes that help convert that T4. It's either going to make it T3 or reverse T3. And when the cell is stressed, it's having more of the deodinase 3 enzyme, which is what makes the reverse T3. That deodinase 3 enzyme will also break down T3 into what's called T2. And T2 is non-active. It's again, just trying to further, the whole point of the deodinase 3 enzyme is to break down and metabolize 
hormones that we don't need to deactivate the system. So just as it takes T4 and makes it reverse T3 so we can't use it, it will take the T3 and turn it to T2. Now we don't have a lab test for T2, so we can't measure this. But if we have someone with lots of deoxygenase 3 activity, and we can see that by a high reverse T3, and we give them T3, it's not really going to fix the problem because the body is going to take all that deoxygenase 3 enzyme and break down that T2 or T3 into T2. And so sure, you gave it to them and there's a big surge and then it's all broken down. And it's just going to increase how much deoxygenase 3 enzyme it's making to keep up with that. So what's very common is that people will feel better for the first couple of weeks after taking T3 because they just got all this surge. Yeah, they're getting it, which their body didn't have. And that's what, that's the active hormone that your cells are using. And then your body catches up and it's like, nope, we don't want that because if your cells are stressed out, and this is the difference between glandular hypothyroidism, which is the thyroid gland not producing enough T4 and then cellular hypothyroidism, which is the inability to, or the, the I won't even say the inability because your body's doing it on purpose most often, unless it's deficiency of something like selenium. But more often than not is that it's purposely lowering the metabolic rate at the cell level. The cells are like, we don't want all this thyroid hormone. We have too much oxidative stress and thyroid hormone ramps up the, the, the metabolism. A high metabolism creates more oxidative stress. Every time we create energy, which is the metabolic process, we create oxidative stress. Oxidation is a byproduct of energy. That's how our body works. It's all how all energy creation works. And so the more energy we create, the more oxidative stress we create. If we already have other oxidative stress from other things, toxins, infections, whatever it may be, the cells are already stressed out. They can't control how much of those outside toxins are coming in and creating oxidative stress. What they can control is the metabolic rate. So it, the cells purposely slow down the metabolic rate as a defense mechanism. 90% of the time, your body is trying to work with you. It's trying. It may not feel like it. It may feel like your body's out to make you feel terrible, but it's really not. It wants you to feel good. It's doing that because that's what's going to help it survive right now. That high oxidative load from the metabolism and the toxins would be a, a massive disaster, you know, recipe for disaster. And so it's going to slow the metabolic rate. And meanwhile, we're here trying to shove that metabolic rate back up by giving T3. That's not fixing the problem. That's potentially making it worse, you know, in the long run. So we have to fix where that oxidative stress is coming from. What's stressing the cell? so that it can lower, it, we get rid of the oxidative stress, the cell comes back to normal function and it will lower that deoxygenase 3 enzyme and then start making its T3 again properly. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. So let's bring it back to somewhere a little bit more tangible for people. So what are some of the best ways that we can start to support our thyroid health through food and lifestyle? Yes, so again, it's a super complex area. It's probably evident by now. There's tons that go into it, right? But we still always can come back to some really basic things, right? We want to limit our toxin exposure. So we want to look at things like household cleaners. Can we make these really simple? Just start making simple swaps so we don't have to go and take, you know, wipe everything out. Pick an area in your house. Maybe it's your cleaners. What are you using for your household cleaners? Start there. For women, what are you using for your beauty products on your body? What's it? And that might be the most important to start with because it sits on you, especially makeup, right? What's sitting on you all day long? 
is it filled with toxins? Can we swap those for better products that we're not just sitting on, our, you know, having that sit on our skin? There is, I can't remember the actual numbers, but it was really terrifying. The average amount of toxins the average woman is exposed to before she leaves the house. I think it's, it's 250 or something like that. It is astronomical and, and scary. So where can we start, you know, getting rid of those things? And, and again, just making changes. It doesn't have, you don't have to go and wipe out your whole house. You know, every month, take a new area. Start with what you're putting on your body. Then start with how you're cleaning the house and just move through those different things. Fragrances, those plug-in scents are terrible, right? You know, a lot of different, you know, just generic candles are just filled with all sorts of stuff we don't want. Again, burning it and then releasing it into the air so we breathe it in, those can be problematic. So, you know, where can we check those things? Then of course, what we're putting into our body. What are we eating? Especially, what are we drinking too? Especially with fluoride, if you live in a, in a city that does fluoridated water, that puts fluoride in their water can be a big issue. So checking that and either getting fluoride filters or getting another source of water can be helpful. Your foods, right? So getting you know processed foods, industrial foods out of our diet, getting back to the basics of real, just whole food groups is going to be really big. Healthy sun exposure getting out and actually experiencing the sun without all the sunblock and clothing, you know, actually getting some natural, even just 15 to 20 minutes a day, getting out as much as you can into that sun. You guys are in summer right now. So it's very easy, a little bit more difficult here. I'm in the middle of winter. It's basically like two degrees for you guys here. Um, We're just above freezing right now. Um, That's hard for me to comprehend. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's quite chilly. Getting outside isn't the easiest thing, but we still can right? Um, Regular sleep, getting a consistent, healthy sleep schedule, getting some exercise, getting some healthy movement. That doesn't mean go kill yourself in the gym every day, but getting some sort of movement consistently throughout the day. Really basic stuff like journaling. Journaling is amazing for reducing stress. It'd be so helpful because what happens is when we don't journal, all of our thoughts get stuck up here. We don't get them out. And so they stay there and they haunt us. When we journal, it is literally the removing of those thoughts and problems and concerns from our brain and allowing them to transcribe on paper. So I highly recommend writing them, not typing in a journal, but actually writing in a journal. There's something about the physical transcribing of that through pen and paper. I won't be surprised in another hundred years that typing becomes just as effective. They've actually done studies that it is that things are more effective writing it out than typing. Gratitude journaling can be really huge, right? Five things you're grateful for every day. It's just, it's, we can't be both grateful and pissed off at the same time. And so th- these are two opposite expressions that happen. So the more time we spend in gratitude, the less time we spend in negative emotions and thoughts. So even just really simple things like that. Those are big ones. Those are huge things that aren't all that complicated. Like it really comes back to getting the basics down. Then of course, if there are still problems, then 100%, it's, Spend the time to pay someone to help you who this is their work. This is their job. I had someone explain this to me. If we don't know how to work on a car, if we have a car problem, we don't sit here and try and Google it and figure it out ourselves and spend months and months of Googling the car problem to try and fix it. We're going to take it in to a mechanic and have them fix it. Even for an oil change, oil change is a pretty simple thing. It really isn't that difficult. Most of us are still going to pay someone else to do it because it's not what we do. But yet when it comes to our health, we so often want to fix it ourselves. People will spend their entire lifetime studying the human body and health and nutrition. 
find those people because that's what they do every single day. Just like if you're an accountant, people come to you for their finances because they have no idea what the heck they're doing. I love that. I think it's so, so fascinating. This is something my boyfriend said to me recently is that with health and nutrition, it's probably one of the very few fields where everyone thinks they're an expert because they follow people on Instagram, they listen to podcasts, they read blogs and articles, and then you already assume that you have this certain level of knowledge. And as you said, people spend their entire lifetime studying this. So when you really think about it, and if you have these you know, more challenging, more complex concerns beyond just eating well, sleeping and moving, then definitely makes sense to go and speak to someone who can put all of this into practice for you. And that's really, I mean, it just ends up saving some, you could spend your ne- the next two years trying to do this for yourself and finally throwing in the towel. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to hire someone. Meanwhile, you spent thousands of dollars probably on various things that you've tried because you didn't want to spend the money to pay someone else. And then you ended up paying someone else in the end anyways. Save all the time and trouble. Really work with someone now. It's just going to go so much further. And I will say, because I know you're based out of Australia. And and anytime I get a podcast, I always get an influx of people who want to work with me. I don't currently work with people outside of the US. You know, I love what you said as well in terms of lifestyle and nutrition recommendations for the thyroid because with these things people often just go and hone in on specific nutrients or really specific things for say the thyroid or the gut or whatever it is that they've got going on but when you look at these things that you spoke about nutrient dense diet removing toxins from your personal care and cleaning products quality water sleep all of these things they benefit your thyroid, they benefit your gut, they benefit your hormonal balance, they benefit every single system in your body. So really focus on on those things and try to avoid just going down rabbit holes that are going to send you into taking one very targeted, isolated thing that you may not even need and start with these foundations first because they have a huge impact on your body on a whole. Yeah, we shouldn't have a thyroid diet and a heart diet and a brain diet, and a gut diet. You should have the human diet. There's something that's going to work for you because it's not like, well, these, you know, these group of people a thousand years ago ate a really good thyroid diet, but they had terrible heart health, right? Like it didn't work. It, it wasn't that way. We've all, and there's, those diets have looked very differently, whether you lived in Australia versus Africa or Europe. So obviously there isn't like this one perfect plate of food that every person needs to eat. There's a ton of variants in there. What all of those cultures have in common is that they eat meat, fish, vegetables, greens, some fruits, some roots and tubers, nuts and seeds. Like those are the things. And most of them ate some sort of grain or legume and had that. And again, that's mostly okay. And depending on where you're at, it's arguable that some, especially in Europe, they still use much older variations of wheat, for example, that haven't been massively hybridized like we have, I know here in the US and probably down there in Australia that have like 10 times the amount of gluten that they did a few hundred years ago. And that, I mean, that that's a big problem because a lot of toxicity comes from the amount, not the presence, but the amount. A milligram of something may not be a problem, but 10 milligrams could be. We have, I mean, even with 
with vitamins and minerals, that can be a problem. Selenium, you're going to have 200 micrograms of selenium, totally fine. 2000 micrograms of selenium is a severe amount of, that can create toxicity if done for long periods of time. And that's with some, that's a, that's a, a mineral that we need. Think about something we don't need that could potentially be toxic to our body. Gluten-free is probably a good place to start. If you're talking about removing anything, um, removing gluten and processed oils are probably the two biggest things that we could, that we could look at removing, but really focusing on eating the other things, focus on filling your plate with meat and vegetables, eggs, nuts and seeds, berries, some roots and tubers. And then if you're still hungry, then maybe have, you know, some grains that are gluten-free or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good advice. So Michael, this has been such an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it and I'm sure everyone got so much out of it. So for people who want to follow along with you, learn more from you, where is the best place to find you? Instagram, website, all of that. Yeah. So Instagram for sure is going to be the best place. It's functional underscore blood underscore chemistry. Awesome. Love that. So everyone, be sure to go and check Michael out, follow along with him and continue to learn more about all of this good stuff from Michael on Instagram. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the High Vibe and Healthy podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to chat with me about how we can work together to reach your health goals, head to frandargaville.com. To connect with me day to day, Instagram is the place to be. Follow me via my handle at Fran Dargaville. And finally, please note that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not considered to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.